This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. She'll lift you up and empower you to help your child and your family thrive. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm excited this morning to be talking to Natalie Burrell and Allison Grant. We're going to talk about grit and resilience, teaching teens um, those skills and how to move forward through their challenges. Thanks for joining me, ladies. I am excited to have this conversation with you. Do you want to start by introducing yourselves to our audience, who you are and what you do? Sure. Thank you so much for having us, Penny. I'm Natalie Burrell. I am a school psychologist at the high school level, and I'm also the founder of Life Success for Teens, which is an academic life coaching company. And what we do is we work with teenagers one-on-one or in small groups on some of the life skills that are so important to have, but sometimes are not taught directly in schools. So grit and resilience are definitely two of those topics that we love to work on with our teenagers. Yeah, for sure. And good morning. Um, I'm Allison Grant. I am by trade a family consumer science teacher. I'm also a licensed school counselor and licensed principal, but my active position right now, current position is as a teacher, um, nine through 12. And I am um, the lead coach for Life Success for Teens, um, where I work on curriculum and also one-on-one coaching uh, with students in small groups. So we're really excited about uh, being here today and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for donating some of your time and expertise. Where do you think we should start in this conversation? You know, I think it's important to define what we mean by grit and resilience, and maybe that's a good place to start. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Um, Maybe just defining, you know, what we think of when we think of grit and what we think of when we think of resilience and the difference between those two. Um, And I'll start, let's talk a little bit about grit. Um, It seems to be a buzzword or a trend word right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so there's a lot of talk about it. But the way that we talk about grit, Alice and I and our other coaches, is it's your passion and your perseverance towards your long-term goals. Um, And to follow with that, I would say it's viewing obstacles as challenges rather than as reasons to quit something. So just to give an example that's kind of teenage friendly, it's something that can help you study for an exam that's three weeks away, you know, or maybe not quit the soccer team after you've had a bad game. So it's what forces you to face, you know, those uncomfortable situations or those challenges so that you can emerge on the other side feeling more confident. So that's what we're thinking of when we talk about grit. Did you have something to add to that, Allison? Um, you know, I think that it's it, it, to start it off. It's really just about in the beginning showing up, um, and because that's the first step to to a lot of this is just making sure to be present mm-hmm. 
because sometimes that's the biggest obstacle is just making sure to be there when everything in your body says, I don't want to. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a huge issue for us too. And, you know, it's really, it's hard for teenagers to have grit because failure to them feels so crushing. Mm -hmm. You know, they're asked to do a lot of things that they don't want to do as teenagers. You know, they have to take certain classes they don't necessarily want to take. We put responsibilities on them that aren't their favorite things. So having a failure to them can sometimes feel like the end of the world. You know, the pressure and and their stakes are pretty high. Um, You know, when you're a teenager and you're trying to manage your school, your academics, you know, your family life, maybe even work or some extracurricular demands. Plus, you know, if you think about the fact that they also have all of the peer pressure and social media pressure, trying to navigate through all of that is really difficult. So sometimes it is easier to just give up or not want to face something that's challenging. And so that's what we're trying um, to work against is to promote that grit and that perseverance towards long-term goals. Yeah. And, you know, we're adding another layer to that with ADHD as well. You know, where where kids are with ADHD are getting even more messages, um, even inadvertently, that um, they're not capable or, you know, they're broken in some way. And so I think that that makes that grit and that determination to keep trying even harder to tap into. I totally agree. And that actually kind of leads into resilience because it's resilient. You know, we think of as bouncing back from something difficult or from some type of adversity and and continuing, you know, to persevere. And that's something that all students, you know, and especially students with ADHD have to have in order to be successful. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think I, Speaking from personal experience, I I was never, I'm not identified as ADHD, but um, I always struggled in school. And so this is kind of where I felt like I lived through my childhood and more specifically my adolescence um, was just to constantly, I felt like the ongoing conversation in my home was you can't give up and you got to keep going. And Um, I think sometimes while I totally think that we should be doing this, we have to remember that it is a very tiring process, Mm -hmm. especially when they are identified um, and, and they're struggling, like, because it is, it, you know, it's, it's really about taking baby steps and not looking at the whole picture at once because the whole picture can make you feel like you're drowning But one or two small steps to how to stick in the game and how to stay there is what can really help them get through. And speaking to my mom and dad, um, my parents were really good about saying, you know, we're not looking at the whole picture right now. We're looking at tomorrow and maybe next week Mm -hmm. and what we need to do right now. And that is how you develop that skill set to stay in the game and to not, you know, give up when you really want to, or when failure has smacked you in the face and you feel like, why would I keep going? Like, why would I continue to do this? Well, we may not have a choice, one, and two, um, long-term, I can say as an adult, 
um, it has really helped me as a professional. Um, and I had no idea what skill set my parents were giving me as a, as a youth to help me as a professional. But now I'm very grateful for it because mm-hmm. I can break things down. I can look at large tasks and pick one little thing out um, to do to kind of continue going and keep the, you know, the choo-choo train going, so <laughs> to say. Um, but that has made a huge difference in my life as a, a person and that really um, had to really exercise a skill set that wasn't always, um, you know, inherent and natural for me. Yeah, I love that you brought up overwhelm because I, you know, I realize more and more as my own son gets older, he's 16 and 10th grade now, that that overwhelm can be very paralyzing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I find it that way for myself sometimes, um, you know, as a pretty much neurotypical person, I have anxiety, but um, I I get paralyzed when I feel like I'm, I'm not going to succeed because I have more to do than I can do. And I don't right. know where to start. And, you know, and I have to kind of take a breath, think about what's the top priority. And, you know, for me, a good trick that I try to do is to um, knock out some super quick, simple things on my list because it mm-hmm. makes me feel accomplished. So if there's something that's urgent, that comes first. And then I'll say, okay, is there something I can do in five minutes? And check it mm-hmm. off because it it kind of I I know that it gives me that momentum, um, mm-hmm. that feeling like I am getting um, things taken care of. My list is dwindling, and then you know that gives me a little more energy to tackle another bigger piece of it. And you know, an overwhelm for our kids with ADHD can come from so many different things. And, you know, in the school environment, I think it comes from a lot of things. It's sensory, it's maybe social issues, it's executive functioning struggles, it's, um, you know, just environment, like feeling, you know, high schools are huge and there's a lot of people. And so, you know, it's, it can almost feel assaulting for a lot of kids. And I think that's a really important aspect that you brought up when we talk about grit and resilience, because as parents, we have to first have the awareness of what that challenge is like Mm -hmm. in order to be successful with um, helping them with the grit and resilience. Well, and I think that we forget sometimes, and and, uh, well, maybe not, but um, it's tiring to always be living in a recovery plan. Mm -hmm. Like it can be so exhausting and I find that even myself when I'm living in a recovering plan that I have to like, why am I doing this? Like, what is this all for? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as adults, we know what it's all for and we're like, okay, like we'll, we'll get through it. But, you know, if you are constantly feeling like you're not good enough or that you're, you can't see your skill set, um, it, it's so important to, help your child find something that they are passionate about and that they are good at because then when things do fall apart in the bad parts or the parts that they struggle with I should say not bad um it's going to be easier to show them a like the light at the end of the tunnel yeah because you can say 
hey, do you see how well you're doing at drama? Or hey, do you see how well you're doing at dance or whatever it is that they are good at a sport? Okay, like this is relatable. Like it may not feel the same and it may not give you that same like wonderful feeling at goal at the end, but it's, you know, we will get there and you do have this skill set in you because you do it every day with the thing that you're really good at. Yes. And I think that that's so important because we need to be able to um, relate that over to that feeling. They have to have that feeling to know that it exists in them because if they can't find it and they don't know what that feels like, then how can they bring it to something that they struggle with every single day? Yeah, that's so true. And and that's a lot of what I teach parents is your child has a lot of challenges and you have to balance that with the positive. And so mm-hmm. what can you get them involved in? What can you nurture that makes them feel good about themselves? It makes them feel capable that, you know, makes them have some joy, you know, um, that's so, so important. And I think that connection with grit and resilience and being able to overcome obstacles. It's exactly where we kind of, to me, it's kind of like building that fire. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're fueling the fire with the good stuff and that fire is going to help keep them going through the challenging stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And something that we recommend, um, you know, both in academic life coaching, but then also in the schools is to parents who have students that may struggle with some of these things or just struggle with school in general, is we suggest that they do some type of either volunteer work um, or work with children or with animals or perhaps the elderly. And the reason why we suggest that is it kind of shifts the dynamic for them or they are the ones um, that are providing the support or maybe seen as the expert or seen as the go-to person or providing care rather than Mm -hmm. student always being the person who has to have the help or the extra Mm -hmm. support to get through something. It's, it's amazing to see our students do some of these things and come back and say, you know, that felt really good (laughs) because I got to help somebody else. Um, So that's something we always suggest to our parents too. That's really awesome. And I really had never had that thought, but making them, giving them an opportunity to take that caregiver role. Um, that That's a really exciting idea. I love that. Um, let's talk about what other ideas you have about overcoming obstacles. What other tips or strategies or tools um, can we give parents to help kids who are just kind of beaten down. You know, yes. I, I I see so many kids with ADHD by the time they're teenagers. And the same is true for my son. Unfortunately, they just feel so beaten down um, by school for the most part. That's most of our, our experience. Um, and it's so hard to undo that. It's so hard to walk that back and you know, I think that part of that is the grit and resilience piece and that, you know, for parents who are listening and their kids aren't yet teens, these are things you can be doing way ahead of that too mm-hmm. that are going to help when they are teens. And I think that's super, super important because it's not really something that was on my own radar. Um, you know, we're, 
we have always nurtured interests and those sort of things, but my focus wasn't really specifically on grit and resilience. And so now we're trying to catch up to that and, and, you know, we've made good strides. So it's not that it's impossible, but, you know, I feel like parents of younger kids, the, it's a great time to get started with building these, um, ideas and helping to strengthen our kids' resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to take that one else at first, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, Penny, you mentioned something earlier that um, I actually found really interesting where you were saying that you as an adult know how to handle that feeling of overwhelm. Um, because when you have something that seems overwhelming, you can prioritize your list right. and you can also break it down into baby steps. And it made me think that there's kind of two pieces Um, to answer the question you just asked. So how do we foster this in our kids, you know, even starting at a young age? And I think the first piece is building the confidence. And we kind of touched on that already, you know, having something that they're good at or passionate about, um, and maybe even putting them in some situations where they are the the caregiver um, and the one in charge. But the second piece, um, and this is the piece that we find with our students, um, sometimes is they don't have the tools or the skills that they need um, in order to handle some of that overwhelm. So for example, you know, you mentioned the difference between, um, or you mentioned that you can handle the tasks first that seem most urgent. And that's actually something we, you know, find that a lot of teenagers can't do. They don't understand the difference between important and urgent. So that's something that we teach them. Um, They also don't understand how to look at a big task or a project for a school that seems overwhelming and break it down into smaller, more manageable pieces. They don't know where to start with that sometimes. So sometimes um, we have to do that kind of hand-holding with our students. You know, let's look at the whole project, but we're going to break it down. What is our absolute first step? Or what's, you know, the smallest step that we can do to move forward? And sometimes it's looking at the whole project and breaking it down um, into smaller parts, like kind of with intermittent due dates. So let's not look at the whole project today. Let's just work on writing your outline. We're going to work just on that this week. So it's teaching those skills that, you know, may come naturally to us as adults, or perhaps someone has taught them to us along the way. Um, but I think it's teaching those skills, you know, outright and directly, but also through modeling. And it's funny because I I have a five-year-old son and I found myself doing this the other day. I said, mommy's making her to-do list, you know, this is what I'm putting on it. Which one of these things do you think that I should do first? Or how much time Mm -hmm. do you think this is going to take? Because we have to go to swim pretty soon. So do you think I have time to do this? And I wasn't doing it on purpose, but as I was saying it out loud, I was like, oh, this is good, Natalie. (laughs) (laughs) The skill, like (laughs) model it for him because it's something that is going to be so important for him to be able to manage. So I just, I'm trying now to be more cognizant of that and just make it a part of, you know, our casual everyday conversation. Yeah. And I, you know, I teach parents that as well. Talk through processes that are just natural to you. They're intuitive to you. You know, talk through the process out loud with your kids because those executive functioning deficits, you know, they don't, 
inherently have the skill to prioritize, to chunk, to, you know, sequence. Um, All of that planning can be so hard when you have ADHD. And so um, problem solving, you know, being able to sit down with that project um, assignment maybe and being able to break it into those parts and schedule and sequence it um, is is so difficult for a lot of them and and what you're describing is really um, scaffolding you know you're scaffolding the support you're not doing it for them um, because then they'll never be able to do for themselves but you are facilitating that's what I always think of it as you're kind of the facilitator um, to help with the gaps but not to do for. Yes, totally agree. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm finding as um, my son gets older in high school, we get a lot of projects that have, that they're basically broken down probably for the sake of the rubric, but (laughs) they're broken down into parts and separate due dates. And that has been such a blessing um, for a kid who struggles with that because, you know, and as parents, when we sit down, we don't always have all the information. It's not always all on that assignment sheet. And so it's really hard to facilitate that process sometimes when we don't have all of the details. Um, but, you know, we do the best we can in helping our kids, but that that piece is is really huge. And, you know, anytime I would encourage parents to reach out to the teacher, if you're trying to help your child break something down or do this process and you just don't have enough information to help them successfully, you know, teachers want to see your child succeed too. And when you reach out, they will help with that. Agreed. And, you know, it, the breaking down things into smaller pieces, of course, applies to academics, but I think it also can apply to some uncomfortable social situations. Yeah. Um, and I'll just give an example that, you know, we use quite often is that a lot of the teenagers we see are very nervous to talk to an adult or a teacher about something that might be uncomfortable. You know, for example, why did I get a bad grade on this? So that task of going to talk to a teacher and, you know, God forbid, talk to them about something that's uncomfortable is super overwhelming to them. Um, And so that's something that we also find we need to teach our teenagers is what's the process for that, for a social situation? And how do we break that down into pieces? And how do we get comfortable um, with doing things that are uncomfortable. Yeah. That's That's a big piece of it. I think that, uh, this is kind of where my family lives, (laughs) (laughs) is social situations. Um, I have a child who struggles with anxiety a lot. And so, um, we, I feel like are constantly playing out, um, role-playing essentially what's going to potentially happen and then giving her, the skills and the language of what to say and how to handle things. Um, and so it's really twofold. It's one, what is the, the, what if, you know, in a, in a limited form, of course, so we don't fall off the mountain. Um, but we want to see all the different scenarios that could possibly happen. Um, so that way there's a little bit of preparation and, and peace that comes with the what ifs. But then also the language. What is the language that you need to say? And then I'll say it in my version, but then I have her come up with it in her version. 
no, how would you say this? That's how mom would say it. So now what is the way you would say this to make it sound um, like it's coming from a, a student, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part to that is, and this is very much long-term, but in the ideal world, what I would do is I would really work on the language in the beginning, this is completely okay, but long-term, so that way they don't put the other person on defense. Because mm-hmm. when you say, well, why did I get a B? Or why why did I fail this? Versus what could I do differently to improve my grade? Mm-hmm. It just changes the dynamic of the conversation, even though really it's asking the exact same question. But I find that teachers... Um, frankly, including myself, um, can very quickly like get defensive. And when somebody says it the other way, it's like flowers and butterflies. And (laughs) (laughs) it is amazing that the, the shift in dynamic and then the, the, um, the answers that just, well, you could try this or this or this, and can I help you with this? And it's so small, but it can make a really big difference and impact. Um, it just also sounds a lot more mature. And so I find that, you know, not just role playing, but the giving them the language to work with can really make a big difference um, in this process. And then while this isn't completely connected to this, I honestly you know, we have to celebrate the goals and the accomplishments that we made. And a goal isn't necessarily, you know, that we got the assignment done. It's that we got the first part of the assignment mm-hmm. done or mm-hmm. that you did take the first step and you went to something that you didn't want to, or you did ask the teacher, even though you didn't get the answer that you wanted, you still did the steps that were really hard and paralyzing for you. Yeah. Um, and that I'm really proud that you went ahead and did those things. Um, And so, you know, right now, like it sounds silly, but we work really hard in my home. Again, I have a smaller child, but, you know, going up to the counter and asking for an extra spoon at the restaurant or learning how to talk to adults, Mm -hmm. um, because I know that that can be, it is uncomfortable. I I swear to God, regardless of your age, it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. When you're speaking to authority figure, it doesn't matter if you're 50, 25 or 10, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And so the more you do it, it's never going to be your favorite thing to do most likely, but you're going to be more confident the more you do it. I love that you brought up making a plan because this is something we've been doing in our house for a long time. My my daughter has anxiety and significant social anxiety, which I also have. So, um, you know, we have found that making a plan ahead of time, talking about the what ifs, okay, if you get lost, what are you going to do? You know, my daughter's in college. She's away from home and, you know, she... Um, relies on me a great deal to kind of help her feel like she still has control. Um, and so we have these conversations together. What, what, if, if this happens, what can you do? What can you do so that that thing you're fearing is 
not going to be a big deal. It's not going to feel like the end of the world because you have a plan and you know what to do. And that's, you know, I have never thought about it this way until this conversation, but that's totally setting yourself up to be resilient. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. giving you, um, the the knowledge almost the information you know storing those things in your brain so that you can be resilient in the moments that are hard um and that by the way is huge for anxiety making a plan ahead of time it it's night and day the way something is going to go and um i wish that i had known to do it like the, as soon as my kids were walking and talking, like I wish I had known a long, long time ago. And, and I guess, you know, I had learned to do that for myself, but I wasn't really translating, you know, I'm an adult with anxiety. I'm on autopilot at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, thinking about that too, sitting back and thinking about what do I struggle with um, as a human being, not as a parent, and do I see the same struggles in my child and what have I learned to do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we were talking about, when I get overwhelmed, I handle it in a specific way. Um, you know, parents have a lot of those things that I don't think we're recognizing and mm-hmm. using to help our kids. I agree. And something um, you said brought up a thought for me. So, you know, for example, your daughter who's at, at college, it sounds like, you know, the two of you have a nice relationship where she can call you and, and problem solve yeah. and talk through things. But so often with our teenagers, some of those conversations become very confrontational. Mm-hmm. And a parent is the one facilitating the conversation. And so something we talk to our teenagers a lot about is knowing the resources and knowing what the resources around them are. And that those resources, you know, could be people, um, but they also could be locations, you know, or tools so that when they're in a situation and maybe mom or dad is not, you know, the go-to person for whatever reason, because it's a tense topic, making sure that your teenager knows where else to go get support is so important. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so fortunate that um, we have a great relationship and she turns to me first, I think always. And I'm trying to help her branch out with that. You know, I mean, she's, she's an adult. She's, um, you know, learning to navigate the world with anxiety and, um, you know, it's, it, I think her automatic response is to reach out to me. And so I have started instead of giving answers, facilitating, um, you know, I've recognized that it's an issue if I always just, answer. Um, and it's little things, you know, she she struggles some with planning and organization as well. And so, you know, she might text me, I, I only have an hour to get to Office Depot to get my, my illustration printed for class. Um, mm-hmm. Send me the address. I'm like, well, <laughs> what I would do is exactly what you would do. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not going to send you the address. You you get the address. But if you need to talk through your plan about safely getting to your car or, you know, whatever might be um, sort of welling up in that moment, that, you know, is what I'm here for. But yeah, I have figured out that I probably did too much for my kids um, for too long in their childhood. (laughs) And so we are, um, 
And I, and I think, you know, anxiety can really dampen independence. It really makes you question if you're capable of doing these things on your own because they feel so overwhelming or they feel um, like their potential for something really bad to happen. And so, you know, but to your point, Natalie, the crux of the parent being a good resource and not being confrontational to me is that they really understand the child. They really understand um, the level of struggle. You know, when she, because I have anxiety myself, when she reaches out to me and she's freaking out about something that to most people would seem kind of silly, to me, it doesn't. And I'm not saying, oh, you just need to, you know, put your big girl panties on and get on with it. I, you know, I don't take that approach, but a parent who doesn't really understand, that's exactly the reaction that they would have. It's natural. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're doing all the right things with her and you're doing the same thing. You're scaffolding her support. And you know what? <laughs> right. When she does look up that number for Office Depot and she gets her project done on time, you just gave her that feeling of success that she doesn't right. necessarily need mom to do that. So I think you're right on there. Thank you. I, I like the reinforcement. <laughs> <laughs> we all need it. We all Glad do. To know. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So, you know, I think all of these things are very significant pieces of building resilience for our kids or, or you know, nurturing resilient kids. Um, it's not our job to really build their resilience. It's to help them build the resilience for themselves and, um you know, that understanding piece is so huge, but then also the scaffolding and facilitating. And, um, and I think, you know, the other thing that comes to mind for me is challenging our kids um, a little bit, you know, pushing their comfort zone, but not to a point that they break (laughs) because, you know, it's, it's easy to overstress our kids or it's easy to push them, um, to expectations that they can't meet right now. And so, you know, I always give that caveat that it's it's challenging them, but knowing where their um, breaking point is and not pushing in that far. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think it's always a good place to start is in a, in a two, two parts to this is one, it's a great place to start in the thing that they're really good at. Like that, that passion that they have is a great place where you can challenge them. And then the second part to it is, is I, my daughter takes gymnastics class and I always have to stay in the background because I get so stressed out watching her. (laughs) And then when I see something that I don't like going on, I have to like keep my mouth shut Mm -hmm. and I want to go in and be like straight in your foot or, you know, point your toe or you can do that better. And I'm like, that's not like, no. So I just sit in the background so that way I, I fade into the, into the darkness. And then, but um, instead of me saying to her, you know, point your toe, I would say, um, what is something that you could have done differently to push yourself harder or mm-hmm. to get to the next level? And so that way they're being pushed and they're being challenged but it's in a more objective way. So it's not, you know, wow, the parent is, wow, my mom or dad's really hard on me, mm-hmm. yeah. but it's more reflective of, so what would you have done differently if you could go back and do it again 
to get to a 10 instead of a nine or from a six to from a five. Um, and that way it's, it's working in a really positive place. So that way, when we are working somewhere that is a little bit more uncomfortable or hard, it's, we've had this conversation already in a positive light. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, Oh, well, they're just picking on me or they're just saying this because I can never do it right. Mm -hmm. Because I think ADHD and anxiety can be best friends. Um, and failure and anxiety can be best friends. You know, you just automatically think, well, if I couldn't do it or if I can't get there, um, well then you start fearing that, you're never going to be able to do it. And then that can be very paralyzing. So I think that it's really important that the conversation comes from a very objective, positive place. So that way when it has to go into a more critical place, um, that the language and the relationship is already there and the foundation is already there that they don't foresee it as something that is negative, but more of a caring and constructive manner. Mm -hmm. And prompting them to think through things themselves. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that I really work with parents on is, um, you know, if, if we're constantly giving them the answer, they're not building any problem solving skills. They're not building any planning or organization skills. You know, thinking through something is a big part of a lot of different skills and aspects of life. And so, and, and, by your child coming up with the thing that they could have done differently, it's so much less pressure than saying mm-hmm. you should have pointed your toe. Right. Um, so much less. I love that. We are coming to the end of our time together in this conversation already. Unfortunately, I know that we just barely scraped the surface of this topic, but anything else that you want to add before we close? Mm-hmm. I think you just got to remember to celebrate. Like, yes, it's so important to celebrate those minor victories and don't wait to the very end um, because sometimes the end doesn't always come in the beginning. And so if you're waiting to the end, it seems like it's a forever. And so those minor victories are so important to acknowledge and to, um, to celebrate and honor. Agreed. Well said. Yeah. That was that was a good a good closing statement, actually. <laughs> I think that's really the crux of it. You know, that's really what we're the meat of what we're talking about. Um for those listening, you can get the show notes and links to um, Natalie and Allison online at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 057 for episode 57. Thanks again for being here, ladies. I enjoyed our conversation and I know that um, many parents listening are going to get so much out of it. Thanks for having us, Penny. Yes, thank you. It was our pleasure. And I will see everyone on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. If you connected with this episode, please share it on social media. Be sure to visit parentingadhdandautism.com to join the conversation and take advantage of Penny's online courses and summits, retreats, parent coaching, and fantastic bonus content.